Well, last time <clears throat> we didn't quite get through it, but we started the seven things that you and I as Christians are not to be ignorant of. And uh, I, I told you how that the, uh, all of these seven series, everything that we're going through here uh, is really fundamentally God's uh, systematic theology, a system to uh, how to understand God in the Bible. And, you, and as, you, as you can well now see, some of these are crossing over uh, and forming a, like my terminology, a safety net that you can't fall through. A safety net of Bible doctrine and teaching that really will keep you, you know, uh, and, and, and save you. Uh, there, there's no substitute in a Christian's life for, for Bible doctrine. And uh, the Bible, the word doctrine we know means to teach. And the Bible will have specific teachings that uh, it gives us. And those teachings have been passed down for centuries uh, from one Christian, from one church to another. And, you know, we just follow that long line of, of, of doing those things. So last week, we, uh, we started, just so we can get a, a, a concept of everything, we started uh, and looked at the first one was uh, not to be ignorant of the Gentiles. And I, I showed you how that the Gentiles fundamentally in understanding them, and, and we are Gentiles, uh, the uh, Gentiles will uh, do two things. And this is everything a Gentile is and does will come down on these two things. <clears throat> first of all, I showed you in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, that uh, the Gentiles will change the glory of God into, into man or an animal or whatever, but they'll change God's glory. The second thing that they'll do in chapter, or, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 25, is that they'll change the truth of God into a lie. And they do that a number of different ways. Now, I know we, we thought we would talk about, you know, the, the changing the uh, the Bible to the new translations, and that certainly would fall into that category. But along with that would also be, <clears throat> you know, the teachings of man. The Bible says that there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And evolution, science, you know, all of those things, philosophy, all of those things that man comes up with uh, to get around God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes through every philosophy that man is ever going to dig up and he lists them for you in there, some 20, 30 of them. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> they all exist for one purpose, and that is to get man around the truth of the Word of God. So all of those were put out by Gentiles. And, uh, you know, and that was the first one. The second we looked at was not to be ignorant of the nation of Israel. And, you know, we, we saw how that the nation of Israel uh, is the most important nation um, as a literal nation, the most important nation in the history of the world. Everything that God is doing back then and even now um, is for uh, the nation of Israel. And all the other nations, Bible talks about in the book of Isaiah that they're just like a drop in a the bucket. They mean nothing to God. <clears throat> what means something to God is the, is the people that he called out. And I know that right now they're in apostasy and they're a long way from God. I get that. But and we also know that God's going to restore them, and that's part of understanding. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, not to be ignorant that blindness in part is coming to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So God is going to turn his attention again to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and we know that, you know, that's been the downfall 
uh, of, uh, of uh, many people, that they think God is finished with the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, they think they actually have taken the place. The charismatics steal the sign gifts and want to make themselves charismatic. You know, it, it, uh, almost everybody to some degree um, in the church that isn't biblically based is going to take some aspect of, of the nation of Israel. The third one we looked at was the baptism of Moses. And I showed you how that, uh, you know, those were uh, there for us to give us the, uh, let us see the examples and the examples that God has for us, that the things in the Old Testament are key to our understanding what God is doing in our lives, and we learn from those. So we saw the importance of that. The one we stopped on last week, the fourth one, was uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, where he said not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. We spent quite a bit of time on this, <clears throat> and I detailed it out for you, how that there's three groupings of spiritual gifts. There's the you know, gifts that were given to the church, pastors, teachers. There's the gifts that were given to the apostles, the sign gifts out of Exodus chapter 4. And then there's the gifts of power that enable you and I uh, through the Holy Spirit of God as we grow for God to do through us what he, he wants to do. And uh, we, we, we talked about that. And I, I, I showed you how that you want to remember chapter 12, 13, and 14. Those three chapters are... Uh, or one section. And uh, he starts out in 12.1 by saying, uh, concerning spiritual gifts, I will not have you to be ignorant. And he closes out chapter 14, verse 40, the last verse, and he says, let all things be done decently in order, clearly showing us that those three chapters are key to understanding uh, spiritual gifts. And again, you know, totally ignorant people today of anything to do with spiritual gifts. They just uh, it's a it's a money making process. It's a, something that eludes most people, and people uh, men will take advantage of their uh, ignorance of it, and uh, it's just it's just a bad deal all all the way around. It's certainly not as complicated as the brethren want to try to make it, but then they want to make a buck off of it. Now today, uh, we're going to look at the start with the fifth one, and this will be in Second Corinthians chapter one, and. Uh, this is probably uh, one of the great principles that you're going to find uh, for you and for me. And I, and I told you, you know, uh, these are things that really help you uh, put the Bible together for yourself. And, uh, and you know, they, th there's a lot of good stuff here that in a practical way, not only a practical way, but understanding how the Bible, you know, puts itself together. But look at verse uh, chapter 1, 2 uh, Corinthians 1, verse 8. It says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. Now, those two verses, uh, you, you don't know for sure uh, exactly when this time is. Most likely it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, where he's talking about what he's going through there. Uh, yeah, I guess it really doesn't matter. Paul was in straight all of his life because of his stand he took and, and the message that he had for God. But uh, out of this 
here that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of, there, there comes some great principles for all of us. First of all, you know, it's, it, it, it shows us that um, we need to see what we go through uh, from God's standpoint, not our own standpoint. And that's where most Christians fail at this point right here. We've talked about the last couple of weeks about keeping our emotions in check on Sunday morning. He that hath no rule over its own spirit like a city broken down without walls. That's a great verse to preach, but that's a hard verse to put into practice. And uh, because we all are emotional beings. Emotions is a God-given part of our life, our makeup, our character as being human. And it's like every other aspect in life, whether it be discipline, whether it be you know, uh, you know, keeping yourself uh, in balance in things. Uh, it, it requires self-discipline through the principles of the Word of God. But I think emotions are probably the hardest one <clears throat> simply because they elude us so much. They can get ahead of us long before we're, we even know it, and then it's too late. And, you know, this is a problem that most people have. And, and I, I'm very honest with you, as good as you ever want to get in the Bible... <clears throat> You'll never, never fully put this down. There'll always be times that emotion will run will rule the day. Uh, the difference is that when you have the principles, you, you can re, re, recover from it quicker. You can identify it quicker, and you can get a handle on it many times so that it doesn't go anywhere. I'm not saying that you won't get get it won't get you. I'm just saying that it won't get you for long if you if you're saturated into the principles of of the Word of God. And that's a you know that's the key, so you know and, and Paul here he he's great. One of the things I like about reading him and what he does and what he gets involved in is he's really good at putting things into perspective. Uh, he's really good at seeing some situation that we would view like this one. I mean, he says here that uh, uh, they had the sentence of death in themselves. They thought they were going to die. Is what he's saying. And uh, But then he says that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. Now, there, there's Paul at his best. There's his emotion. Hey, I, we might die in this. But then he comes back to the principle and the perspective. You know, maybe this is so we don't have to learn to trust in ourselves. And, uh, you know, uh, the trials <coughs> that we go through, <coughs> no matter what it may be, and it may not be something this serious. It may be something that is very serious to you, but on a large, serious scale from 1 to 10, it's maybe a 2 or a 3. But to you, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's a problem. And it's an emotional thing for you. And it's a, something you've got to deal with. And what he's saying here is that troubles that we have, we can look at them two ways. You know, I've heard guys preach all my life that problems in your life will, you, will either get you to run to God or run from God. And that is so true. In most of our cases, we run from God because our emotions take over and, you know, and off we go. And the, the thing that he wants us not to be ignorant of is, is that when we're going through something, we need to stop <coughs> and look <coughs> at what God has for us in this because the great principle is that nothing happens to us <clears throat> that is not by God's hand. <clears throat> so if it was just a rule of the dice and your name came up that today's your day, <clears throat> then that would be worth 
<coughs> getting emotional about. <coughs> but when you actually realize that whatever has befallen you, whatever is there, <coughs> God allowed there for some purpose and some reason, then at least <coughs> you know that even going through it, you're not by yourself. So then instead of focusing on what you're focusing on, you focus on what God's trying to show you through it. Now that takes discipline to be able to do that, discipline within your emotions, because the first thing of our emotions is going to be all over the place. You know, we're going to think the worst. We're going to do this. We're going to think this. We're going to, and that's not where you need to go. And it's a thing where you realize that, you know, the problems that we go through, God uses uh, to, uh, to show us that he's greater than whatever issue you're, we're in. And then at the same time, sometimes God allows this to, <clears throat> to uh, you know, to see things that we need to change in our lives. And it, it's a thing where I've known people who, in all my ministry, and, you know, and I never preach about this because I, I don't have to. When you get fall in love with the Bible and God, it, it takes care of itself. But <clears throat> I've known people all my ministry who struggled in in their life in in all kinds of issues. I mean, it's in 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 their financial side of things or in uh, the physical side of things. Nothing ever works out for them, <clears throat> and they <clears throat> they and I and they'll come in and talk to me, and and usually <clears throat> I can't think of the Latin term for it, but the Latin term for it means that the uh, simplest solution is probably the right one. Can't remember what that official term of that is. I think it's um, the simplest term. Yeah, what is it? Occam's razor. Ox, yeah, what is it? Occam's razor. Ox, Occam's razor, right. Yeah, I didn't do that this morning. Occam's razor. <laughs> and Occam's razor is that the simplest answer is usually the right answer. And that's, that's really true. I mean, and it, it really is. And I don't know how many times over the years somebody's come in and said, hey, I just can't get ahead of this, can't get ahead of that, and it's like that. And they always... <clears throat> come up with the idea, uh, almost in every case, they always come up with the idea that if they got a better job, if they had more money, if they made more money, that that, that would solve their problems. And, and I'm not saying, and in some cases that isn't true, uh, but the, the easiest, the, the simplest answer is usually the right one. And I'll ask them, I'll, I'll just simply ask them up front, I'll say, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Do you tithe? Do you give back to God what he's given to you? And many times, most of the time, the answer is, well, you know, no, I don't. And then I, there it is. The easiest answer is the, the right one. And it's a thing where maybe God is showing you that, that 90% of your income will go farther with God's blessings than 100% without God's blessings. And that's just a simple, that's not complicated. And it's a thing where, you know, Many times God will allow things to come into uh, your, your life that he's trying to show you something. And, you know, I've had it where they, like I said, they've come in and th- th- they'll say, well, if, you know, if I had a better job or if I had more money or if I had this. And I always say to them, you know what, in, in your particular case, it's not an issue of getting more money. It's the issue of doing what's right with the money you have. And that's the key. But it's a thing where many times struggles will come into our life because, you know, we, uh, we, we don't do what's right with, with what God gives us. And my philosophy is simply this. You take care of God, he takes care of you. And you can't beat that in anything in your life. 
And, you know, sometimes God will put a person in your life. And, uh, you know, he puts that person in your life for you to learn something, to grow through something. And none of us like that because we want our life to be, you know, cherry blossoms and strawberries and, you know, and, and everything fine. But you know as well as I do, you never learn anything that way. So God will put somebody in your life that you can't stand, somebody put in your life that you have a struggle with, somebody in your life that you don't like. And he will continually keep bumping you up against that person. And, you know, and, and maybe that person, you know, is, has done one or two things in their life, or you don't like the way they dress, or you don't like their hair, or you don't like this, or you don't like that, or they did something to you at some point in your life. You know, you've held this eternal grudge now for 155 years, you know, that nobody even remembers. And it's a thing where sometimes God will put situations you in like that to show you, you know, to get their attention that, uh, you know, well, I, God, I don't like this person. This person doesn't do this, or this person is not what I like, or this person is this. And God will simply speak to you and say, you know what, I understand that. But I got to tell you something. You didn't look too hot to me the first time I saw you. Amen. And I got to where we're at. Now, what's your problem here? You see, God will use things like this. And most of God's people can never see it. They never, can't ever reach out and, and wrap their arms around uh, a, a principle that, you know, and, and here, I mean, it's, come on, it's much worse than what we all go through. I mean, I mean, they're going to lose, they think they're going to lose their life. He says there that they, they, were, they were pressed out of measure above strength in so much as we despaired even of life. That means that they don't think they're going to make it. <clears throat> they're really being pushed, pressed under, a, under, a, under an oppression here. <clears throat> and yet he sees that the first response is that, oh, we got the sentence of death. We're going to die. The second response, the biblical, or the reaction is, oh, we're going to die. But the response is, well, wait a minute. You know, um, maybe God's trying to tell us not to trust in ourselves. Maybe we'll just trust in him. And if we ever had issues in our life and we didn't have problems, we never learned to trust God. You don't learn to trust God. You don't become the great Christian that you need to be by not having any issues in life. And this is why, and this is so fundamentally true, the, the, the oxum razor principle is so true that this is why people who have a lot of money, who can buy everything and everybody and buy whatever they want, and they never have any tough times in their life, they don't have to sweat out a car payment. They don't have to sweat out a gas bill. They don't have to sweat out how they're going to put gas in their car for next week. They don't have to trust God for, you know, this to come in or the kids get sick and you don't have right health insurance or you got it, but it doesn't pay for it all. They don't have to sweat those things out. They don't have to go to God for that. They just write a check for it. And people like that fundamentally, almost without, without a doubt, <clears throat> will never be strong Christians. Simply because that they don't have to trust God for anything. I used to I used to laugh every time Bob Jones University used to put out a a magazine, and we used to get it back at one of the churches I was at because they would send it out to all the churches. And their magazine was called Faith Magazine. And every time it came, I'd always grab it because uh, I'd always get a kick out of it because here's a here's a bunch of people that live on tax free property that. Their houses are paid for by the, 
university. Their cars are paid for. They've never had to fix a busted toilet. They've never had to pay a water bill or sweat out this or sweat that. They've never had everything. I mean, they got waiters. They got servants. They got people to do everything. They never cook a meal in their life. They don't paint their walls. They don't do this. They don't have to rip up the old carpet. They got everything they could ever want. And they're going to write to you and me about Faith Magazine. <laughs> but you'd be surprised at the people that just grabbed that and held onto that like it was the second writing of the Bible. And uh, by people who didn't, who could tell you about faith based on uh, what somebody else has told them. But I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in your understanding your faith in God based on what you read someplace. I'm under- interested in your faith in God because of what you went through and He brought you through it. That's where it's at. So, this is a great principle here. And this is something that we as God's people, we need not to be ignorant of because of the fact that uh, there's going to be times in your life and my life where we're pressed out of measure. There may be times in your life where you wonder if you're going to make it or not. Hey, you can either react to that and go a panic mode or you can respond to it and simply say, you know what, God, It's, it's 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 in your hands. You know, uh, I just gotta, uh, I gotta, I gotta trust in in you that you're gonna get me through this the way it needs to be to go through. And it's one of the greatest, greatest principles for uh, the Christian life that you could ever do. Now, now here's another little thing I'm gonna take to the next step, and this would make a great devotion if you're gonna do a devotion for volleyball coming up. And by the way, they took the draft this morning. We added two more teams. We got 14 teams this year. I am really hyped over that. The only downside to it is I can't play. But I want to tell you what. I will, uh, I will bring in plenty of cheeseburgers and, and Diet Coke. But anyway, but this, what I'm about to give you would be a great little devotion. And, you know, while we're talking about it, in a devotion, whether it's softball or volleyball, <coughs> You always want to you always want to keep in mind that uh, a little concept: get in, get it done, get out. Uh, it's uh, you know I watch some of you guys go on for an hour, you know, and you know and, and, and you're not you're not you're not conscious of the people that are there. If you got somebody that somebody invited to a team. You know, when they're not saved or they're maybe not going to a good church or they're just, they're not where we're at. <clears throat> you lose sight of the fact of who they are. You think this is your 15 minutes of fame where you're going to really win them over with your galactic uh, understanding of the scriptures. And I've watched it. I've sat there at a distance, you know, and watched these guys as you guys just, you know, drone on, so to speak. And, and I watch them just shut you off. And, you know, you come away because, you know, you don't have the insight into it. You come away thinking, wow, I did a great job and did that. And they're coming away saying, man, that was the most boring thing of my life. Listen, in a situation like that, you need to be smarter than the problem. You do much better giving them a 10, 12, 15 minute at the max injection of truth, making a couple of points and then supporting those points than you telling them about the genealogies of Isaiah and Asa and, 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 and Melchizedek. It, you know, it, it's just better to get in, get it done, and get out. So over the years, and I've never even used all of them, I, I, I found those little three-point 
outlines in the Bible that, honestly, they make great sermons. This, what I'm giving you, would be a great sermon. I've already spent 20 minutes here giving you the first part, and I could spend another 40 minutes on the next part I'm going to give you. But at the same time, it's a condense it down. It is a great, 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 great short-term stick them, get out, get it done uh, concept. Because the next verse is really what Paul learned from this. And if I was doing a devotion, just so you know, since it's, we got all these things coming up. If I was doing a devotion, say I'm going to use this. And here's what I would do. I'm going to give you the devotion, and then I'm going to bring it in. I'd just say, you know what? Thank you for being on my team. Um, we will go to the Super Bowl uh, volleyball tournament this year, I'm sure. But anyway, um, you know, I just want to take a moment and, and give you something that has really made an impact in my life. Um, you know, we all struggle with issues. We all have problems. And one of the greatest examples of this is found over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, where uh, Paul tells us that we're not to be ignorant of this truth. And this is a great truth, and we all need to not be ignorant of it. And here's what he says, verse 8, it would not be that you have an ignorant of this trouble that came to us. I'd read that verse. I'd read verse 9. And I'd say, now, just so you understand a little bit about this, Paul was going through a really tough time. He says here that he's, he's, they think they're going to die. And we all have struggles in our life. Maybe not to this degree, but maybe you're going through something tonight and you're struggling with. And now see, the reason I said that is because most generally you're going to have somebody in there that is going through something. So if you say that, their ears are going to perk up. If you just drone on, you know, and, and don't get it to them. And, and when you give a devotion, you want to be have the presence of mind of who you're speaking to here and look at your crowd and say, hey, there's some people here that I don't know that are probably either lost or they're not where they need to be. And I got an opportunity just to drop a little, a little bit of truth to them and then let the Holy Spirit of God get out of the mindset that you're going to do the Holy Spirit of God's work. Get in, get it done and get out and then let God's Holy Spirit take care of it. So I would, I would go on and I'd say, now they really looked at this as a struggle. And the thing, there's two things here I want you to see. Really, uh, four things, but they're, they're in two categories. And the first thing I want you to see is that Paul saw his dilemma, but then he saw God in his dilemma. And this is the first thing we all need to do. We're all going to have dilemmas. The question is, can you see God in the dilemma? And that's the first thing we want to see. And then he makes a, one, of the, one of the three greatest statements anywhere, anywhere found uh, in the Bible about the struggles that we go through. Look at verse 10. He says in verse 8 and 9 that they're going through this time, but then he realizes and recognizes that God is going to deliver them. Now look at this. Look at verse 10. Who delivered us from also a great death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, verse 10 shows you the three aspects that we need to always keep in our mind about whatever we go through in life. And there's three aspects here that I want to talk about, about your relationship and my relationship with Christ. And the first one is, he says, who delivered us? That means if you're saved here tonight, that God delivered you from the lake of fire. He hath uh, who delivered us. And then the second thing he says is, 
doth deliver us. Not only did he deliver from hell, but doth deliver us means he's going to deliver me from everything I'm facing today. And then the third aspect to it is will yet deliver. Not only did he deliver me in the past from the lake of fire, not only did he deliver me a day, but whatever I'm going to face tomorrow, he's going to yet deliver me. Now, I'm going to take this one step further. I'm still talking to my little group here. I'm going to take this one step further, and I'm going to show you how to put this into a real easy little format. When he says the first thing, who hath delivered us, that means that that's past tense. That means that he delivered me from the penalty of sin. Then he says, hath delivered, doth deliver today. That's the present. That means he's delivered me today from the power of sin. And then it says, doth yet deliver, and that is in the future, and that means that someday when the Lord comes back, he's going he's to deliver me from the presence of sin. Now, see what you got there? And then you're done. You say, thank you, let's all go to Jason's Deli, and uh, Bob buying everybody dinner tonight, so make sure you show up and get the most expensive thing on the menu. See what you do? Now, I, don't, I didn't time that, but I get you that was under 10 minutes. But you see what I gave them? And if somebody is there that is struggling, you got more accomplished in that eight or nine, 10 minutes than you would going on with Abijah begot a Habashiah, and a Habashiah begot a Zechariah, and a Zechariah begot a Bendigo. I mean, you got to be smarter than that. You've got to recognize and realize that when you have a group like that, look at your audience. And these little three-point things here, uh, and I'll tell you, you know, uh, when you've got something that's that clear that the Bible says we're not to be ignorant of. Now, I know you can't use them all. Uh, you might be able to use the Gentile one, maybe. I don't think you'd want to use the nation of Israel one. Uh, the spiritual gifts was too deep for them. Um, you know, the baptism of Moses, if you know how to do that one right, that might be okay. Give them a little understanding of Bible study, but you got to be careful with that. But the suffering with Christ, man, that's something that everybody goes through. And that is one of the sharpest, cleanest, three-point principle outlines being delivered from the penalty of sin, being delivered from the power of sin, and being delivered from the presence of sin. Past, present, future. And when you understand that, then you can put in perfect context, like Paul did, what you're going through now. It doesn't matter what you're going through once you understand that right now he has delivered us from the, from the, uh, from the power of sin. You, you, you have victory over it. But there again, uh, what, took nine, ten minutes to do that and, and leave them with that. Uh, and, you know, they're going to go away remembering that forever. The Holy Spirit of God now has something to work with because you attacked the problem with intelligence. You saw your crowd, you prepared what you wanted to do, and you gave it to them quick, clean, clear, and you're out. And then the Holy Spirit of God does the rest. And uh, when it comes to giving people truth, especially people who are not dialed into truth very well, follow this rule. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God job harder for him than it needs to be. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God undo all the goofy stuff you said to get down to the point that you needed to get to. Don't let the Holy Spirit of God have to look at that and say, now what in the world am I going to do with this? Yeah, what he said was right, but these people don't need that. Why didn't he just stop here? 
Why didn't he just do this, this, and this? What is wrong with that guy? Why couldn't he just give him one, two, three, and go eat? No, 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 no. He's got to go on and teach the whole Bible. I mean, here we are. You've been there for four hours and 46 minutes, and he's only up to Malachi. <laughs> you want to give them what you can. Get in, get it done, and get out. And let the Holy Spirit of God do what he does best. Take the simple presentation that you gave them and work it in their hearts. And don't make it more complicated for him. Make it easy for him because he's dealing with people who they don't need to wade through a lot of other things that they don't understand what you said to get to the things that you said that were understandable. Smarter than the problem. So that's the, that's the fifth one, and that's a great one. But that is an absolute great one. And uh, seeing your trials and tribulations from God's standpoint, recognizing that God allows those things into your life for some purpose. And, you know, and then you, I said, I could take that and I just kind of blew through the three and then the, you know, delivered from the penalty, delivered from the power. I just blew through those two. I could have taken 35, 40 minutes with those. I could have developed each one of those if I wanted to do this into a sermon. And I could, would keep coming back to the ignorance of God's people, driving home my point. And you could, that'd be an incredible sermon if you're going to preach to somebody, a bunch of Christians someplace in a church or uh, up at Lincoln or, you know, people that are, that are coming to learn something about the Bible. But again, you know, you have to have it where you can, you can it can work for you. Uh, this is not something that you want to get home today, write it all down and run home and say, I got it, and then try to do it tomorrow. I, I wouldn't try that. You're better off giving the genealogies of Zechariah. You've got to understand these things yourself first. And I, and I say that fully knowing that many of you could, could do that. I mean, you're, you're that far along. But I'm just saying, you always got the guy in the crowd. <clears throat> well, he's not here this morning. But you always got the guy in the crowd who, who uh, wants to run home with it and then package it up and then resell it tomorrow. And it, it, it doesn't work that way. But uh, the majority of you could probably handle that. All right, the sixth one. <clears throat> The sixth one uh, is going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, this one is found in 4.13, and it says this, starting in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Uh, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, uh, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now this number six here, uh, that we're not to be ignorant of, is the rapture of the church. And <clears throat> Bible-believing Christianity the true line going back to Antioch, has been the only group 
that has ever acknowledged uh, and believed the, the rapture of the church. Now, you have some splinter groups that, uh, that do it. The Charismatics believe in it, but they're not, they're not Bible-based or they're not, they're not a New Testament church in any stretch of the imagination. And you're going to find that your Protestant churches today, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, they don't believe it. Uh, you're going to find your neo-Orthodox group like the Roman Catholic Church and some of those other groups don't believe it. Uh, most of the neo-evangelical crowd that you'll find, those are those big mega churches, uh, they don't believe it anymore. And of course, uh, again, it goes back to um, the first thing we saw when we studied this is understanding and be not being of Gentiles. This is what Gentiles do. Gentiles will, uh, you know, they'll take the uh, they'll change the glory of God, uh, and then they'll change the truth of God. And that's what they do. And, you know, uh, I, I, have never, I have never had anybody that believes that, <clears throat> that there is no rapture. And I'd love to sit down with one at some point in time. Um, I'd love to have them come on Bible study some night and just have fun with it. Uh, but I've never understood what they're how they ever explained away 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, passage that is read. I mean, if that's not the rapture of the church, then what is it? Uh, it, is, it certainly isn't the second coming of Christ in any way, shape, or form. And uh, it's a thing where uh, it, it just doesn't, there's no, not, nowhere to do with it. And, and I guess <clears throat> in their minds, but they're so out of touch with the Bible anyhow, and the Bible is really of none effect to them that they don't even think about that passage. And, you know, that has been one of the great truths that has been with the Bible-believing line all the way back to when Paul wrote it here uh, to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, he's, he's not talking about Israel here in any way, shape, or form. So what do you do with this if it isn't in reference to us? And, you know, and I, the arguments that they have is, is, is a ridiculous argument. They'll say, that the, they'll say that the concept of the rapture goes back to uh, a guy that was from England uh, around 1900. Uh, his name was Darby, uh, who wrote a lot of things about uh, future things. And uh, Darby was a good guy. He was a, he was a fundamental guy, good, good, good writer. And they'll take it back that that's where it all started. And of course, uh, again, you show your complete absence of understanding anything about church history. Uh, Everybody believed this down through church history. The rapture was not a concept that came in in 1900. Now, you're neo-evangelical, you know, and I got to give you this. You did come in around 1900. But the rapture was well long before you were around. So it's one of those things. And then they, 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 again, showing their stupidity. They say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. So therefore, it must not exist. I had one of them say something one time. He said, we were in a Bible study. It wasn't here. And somebody asked a question about the rapture. And he raised his hand and he says, do you really believe there's a rapture? And I said, absolutely. I said, the Bible teaches that. And he says, well... Uh, how do you believe something that you never find the word rapture in the Bible? Like, because I don't find the word, then it can't exist. And I asked him, I said, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He says, absolutely. I said, show me the word Bible in the Bible. See, you don't find the word Bible in the Bible anywhere. 
But it's okay there because you want to believe the Bible. But with the word rapture, and I told him, I said, you know, your problem is, is just one of stupidity. I said, you don't even know where the word came from. Uh, in the old Latin Bibles that the Waldensians, remember them, 200, 300 A.D., the old Latin Bibles, the Waldensians, that's where the word originally comes from. It comes from the Latin word rapto, which means to be caught out. Now, he didn't know that. It goes all the way back to the Waldensians. Not only that, we have a word, our word for rapture is to be raptured with love, to be t- swept off your feet, to be taken completely uh, and encased in the love of somebody. And of course, uh, the word found, its, found it back there came along with the book of Song of Solomon, where the church is clearly raptured with the, uh, with the love of Christ. So it's, it's, it's found in history and I would get this where an evangelical couldn't get it, or anybody else really, because it's found back in the Bible with people who really had an absolute love for God and His Word, and that would not be you. So I could get it very clearly why, how you couldn't get it. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's the word given to the event based on Song of Solomon in chapter 2, where all he talks about is Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Him. And then you're raptured out in chapter 2 by that love. And the fact that the word's not found there, and that's a word that describes what's going on, and we do that all the time. I mean, give me a break. Guy says, well, I believe in Calvinism. Show me that in the Bible. (laughs) See? Somebody says, well, I'm a Catholic. Show me that in the Bible. I mean, uh, we, we do it all the time wherever we want to when it works for us to be convenient. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, the rapture is one of the, uh, we talked about this Thursday night, it's one of the seven wonders, spiritual wonders of, of the Bible and, uh, and what God does. And uh, you're going to find that uh, when you understand the whole concept of the Bible, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, which most Baptists would never get to this. Certainly a neo-evangelical couldn't get to it. Uh, certainly a, a one of the occults could never get to it. You'll find very clearly where the, um, you know, the, um, the uh, nation of Israel in the Old Testament is very clearly defined as God's wife. Then you have Christ in the New Testament, and you have the church that is his operational structure in the New Testament, and that is likened to his bride. Now, we know that we have to have a second coming of Christ. We know that that's clear. Most people don't argue that, that are getting to that point. So we know that Christ does, or God does come for his, his wife, Israel. Now we're left to the point where does Christ come for his bride? And if you don't have a rapture, then what you have is, is the church going through the tribulation period. That's the end result. And of course, there's plenty of people around that believe that today. So it's one of those things where that the real, uh, it, it's a real major key doctrine in the Bible that is uh, really non-negotiable. And again, uh, the, the charismatic, the neo-evangelical, the whoever could never see this, but it, it's clearly taught in type. And remember now, I, I told you that types, you don't teach a doctrine off of the types, but the types will support the doctrines once you have the truth. And so we see it at Christ's first coming. 
you know, uh, we, uh, we, we see how the Bible says in Romans chapter 11 that uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And we see that uh, at the first coming of Christ, the type of this, when Christ was born, he came privately to his family in a manger, in a stable, and he revealed himself to his immediate family then. Then later on, he comes and the whole world sees him at the second coming of Christ and he comes for his nation. That's a picture of the rapture of the church and the second coming. When a rapture takes place, Christ comes for his family. A mystery, private, not a worldwide showing. And when he comes back later at the end of the tribulation, then it's a worldwide event and uh, it's known as the second coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, so you have the rapture there for the, for the intimacy of the church when he comes to take his bride. So everything is laid out for you in the Bible. And it's a situ- system where it's such a crucial doctrine that uh, you can't put the Bible together systematically without it because you have nowhere for the church to go. And then you're left with places like this. And again, another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And remember now, when we came through the seven mysteries, uh, the rapture was one of those mysteries. So we covered it in great detail under the mysteries. Here again, we find it come from another angle. And uh, the angle here is that we're dealing with the, uh, you know, as as something we're not to be ignorant of. So two times so far, we've found this. Two times so far, we have now found where it's crossed over as a one of the seven mysteries, also as the, uh, you know, the, uh, the thing we're not to be ignorant of. So we, we have it now very clearly laid out for us. And uh, this is a picture where, you know, without the rapture of the church, your Bible's incomplete. And it's a thing where, as I said, <laughs> Uh, we're coming to the place where we're getting so far from the Bible now. Uh, Fundamentally, about 130 years. 130 years where we have been moving toward a complete absence of the Scriptures, where in 2019, we're we're just about there. And, And it's a thing where you can see now what you lose when you lose your Bible. And obviously, I've taught this many, many times for many, many years. The first thing you lose is your doctrine, and things like this go out the door. They're no longer relevant to the church. Church, for the most part, doesn't even know why it exists today. It has no fundamental purpose. It exists simply because of the fact that here it is. Uh, They don't really have a, a depth to them of why they believe what they believe. So... This is the sixth one here, and the sixth one is the rapture of the church. I might make mention of this, because this gets confusing to people sometimes. Down here in verse 16, it says, For the Lord the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now that trump there, obviously, is a trumpet. And this has been confusing for uh, some people, and uh, and because you find it in the book of Revelation, too, and you find it in the Old Testament in places. 
And of course, the answer to it is a very simple answer, and that is uh, that there's two trumpets connected here. There'll be one trumpet that's connected with the, uh, with the rapture of the church, and that's likened to a voice. And then you come have a, an old, a, trip, a trumpet in the tribulation period that is likened to the old ram horns that they uh, blew for the assembly of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and that'll be the second coming. So you fundamentally have two trumpets involved here. You don't get that, then it's easy for somebody to get the trumpets confused and think the trumpet here is a trumpet in the tribulation, and that's what a lot of people do. The greatest single understanding of where the rapture fits in it would be given in one of the books that John writes. And I know we have been talking about, uh, you know, the writings of John for the last couple of Thursday nights and how important they are. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are, uh, there are five wisdom books that are written by Solomon or uh, whoever wrote the other one. Solomon writes, uh, he writes, uh, uh, he writes three of them or four of them. But in the New Testament, you'll find that you have the same number of wisdom books. And that'll be Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. Those are the five wisdom books of the New Testament. Where Solomon and the wise men write them in the Old Testament, then the John, a type of the church, writes them in the New Testament. And for me, it's always been, once you know that John is a type of the church, it's always been a thing for me to see that these are the things that the church should really understand. And as I told you the other day, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he's defining Christ as the Son of God. When he writes 1 John, then he's, he's, he's defining Christ and our fellowship, that we perceive who he is. We now know who he is. Then he writes 2 John and 3 John. He's given us insight into how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. One is to the elect lady. That's always Israel. The other one is to the two wise men or, or the wise men. One was wise, wise is foolish. That would be the book of Proverbs, the nation of Israel. And then he writes the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is what I call the capstone of the Bible. And in that capstone of the Bible, uh, he basically recounts everything that God is doing. And it's, it's, it picks up at, in, in Acts chapter uh, 20 and runs you into eternity. And by doing that, if you see the connection between the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, then the Old Testament gets rolled into it also and you get a complete picture of it. But forget that for a moment. What he does is he shows you that in our chart up here on church history, church history proper starts in Acts chapter 20, where Paul goes to the church at Ephesus. And then when he's there, he says goodbye to them before he goes down to Jerusalem. And, you know, he gets never returned from, uh, from Rome. I'm sorry. I'm, excuse me, Jerusalem. And then he goes to Rome and he never, he never gets out again. And so we see that that's where church history starts. So lo and behold, when we come to the book of Revelation after the opening statements, he brings you through seven churches, which we know historically were seven actual churches in Asia Minor. But for us, in a, in a practical, inspirational sense, they show the seven periods of church history, starting with Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, right up to Laodicea, which we are now. And you see them on our chart up there at the top of the line. And so what he does is he shows you in chapter 1, 2, and 3, 
he shows you church history by breaking it down into seven periods. I've always thought that where the book of Acts will define church history for you as far as the road signs and the things you want to look out for, when you get into the book of Revelation, it shows you, at least in the first three chapters, it shows you the roadmap of church history, where it's going. And it gives you insight into each one of these churches as it comes through time, right up to the great Philadelphian church period when the King James Bible came out, City of Blood and They Love, right up to the Laodiceans where uh, they've lost the Bible and this is where we're at now. So he, he does that for you. And then in chapter 4, I think in the first three chapters, you find the word church mentioned 21 times. And then in chapter 4, Revelation, a door opens up in heaven. You hear, again, a voice like a trumpet, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that says, come up hither. And John, a type of the church, says, and immediately, like a twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, uh, 51, he's caught up to the throne of God. Now, there's the rapture of the church in type. Once that happens, chapter, uh, rest of chapter 4 takes place up in heaven. Uh, then in chapter 6, you start uh, the tribulation period, and you run through the tribulation up to Revelation chapter 19. Then you have the second coming. Then after the second coming in 19, in chapter 20, you have the millennium. And in chapter 21, you have the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 22, you have eternity. Everything is systematically laid out for you exactly where it goes from the beginning of the church till you get into eternity with the Old Testament rolled in when you put the book of Daniel to it. And then you see in chapter 4, there's no question, somebody is raptured out. And again, nobody would ever figure it out. Nobody could ever grasp it that doesn't believe the Bible. You find a phrase up there in Revelation chapter 4, come up hither. You find that phrase three times in your Bible. And they will match up to the three aspects to the rapture. The rapture is, is, a, is an event that has three parts to it. In Proverbs chapter 25, you're going to find the Old Testament saints. It says, come up hither. Revelation chapter 4, you're going to find the church come up hither. And Revelation chapter 11, you're going to find the tribulation saints, and you'll find that the third and final time come up hither. So, and again, the rapture is likened to a harvest. You have the first fruits. That's the stuff that's ripe early, Old Testament saints. You have the main body of the harvest, the church. And then you have the uh, gleanings, what's left over that you have to pick up later. That'll be the tribulation saints. There isn't. There is an evangelical uh, Baptist in this city who understands what I just gave you. If they believe the rapture, they believe it because they don't have anything else to believe. They don't know why they believe it. But a person who rejects it will be someone that is absolutely, totally ignorant of anything in the Bible that points to this absolute, incredible day that has to be in the concept of, of the church. And it's a, it's a thing where you know, it's just, it's just the way that it is. So, you know, the rapture of the church, again, we're crossing over now with this, one of the seven mysteries. And uh, it's found again in Reference chapter 15. We won't go through all that. We did it the last time. <clears throat> Here we'll focus on Thessalonians 4. And very clearly, you'll find that, uh, um, that this is uh, where you're at. Now, here, uh, again, you find that... Uh, <clears throat> This is a picture of the Lord coming back, raising up the dead in Christ first, and then up comes somebody being taken up and then met together again. Where do you put that? 
It's like if somebody, and this is the this is the great thing about the Bible. Once you start to reject Bible doctrine, you have places all through that Bible that you don't know what to do with, and you got to get rid of. It's like if a guy doesn't believe if a guy doesn't believe the gap. All right, if he doesn't believe the gap, well, then where do you put the fall of Satan? I mean, where do you put that? He obviously fell, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 4. Where do you put that? If you take the gap and say, I don't buy it, then I got a question for you. Here, take your Bible, take your Bible, show me where the devil fell. I mean, you do believe he did fell, he did fall, don't you? Or right, show me where. And you take me back to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, there's some pointed things in there. Where was the garden, Eden, the garden of God? Is that where he fell? You mean he fell like 20 minutes before we showed up with Eve with the poison apple? I mean, where did he fall? How did he fall? Tell me that. I mean, you think that the major point of the Bible of the devil, uh, Lucifer becoming a devil, wouldn't be covered in the scripture someplace? God just said, well, that's not really important. Really? See, once you, once you start rejecting truth, then you have all kinds of problems come your way. Because now... You, you have glaring places that you don't know what to do with. And so most cases, they just avoid them and hope uh, that you'll never ask about them. And very frankly, the people that they're pastoring are so stupid that they wouldn't know to ask about it anyhow. You may get a smart guy every once in a while, like some of you that show up and put him on a hot seat, but yeah, that doesn't happen very often. He, he's very comfortable with the idiots that he pastors uh, because he's the head idiot. And, uh, you know, he knows that those little idiots are not going to put him on the spot because he's taught them uh, what the big idiot believes and they don't think any past that. They're, they're programmed to just listen and accept it without ever asking any questions. And, uh, and that's just the, what it is. And then you have the element that he's always putting out the fact that this is the, this is the uh, great scholarly minds that have come up with this. So... That being said, it's like the old propaganda theory. If you know, if it took a lie out long enough, people are going to believe it. So with that being said, everybody reverence in their God as education, so they're going to accept it face value because, you know, they don't want to disturb the God of education. So they just accept it because they think that it's came down from men who know a lot more than they are. So they're not going to look foolish by going up against the God of education. That's how it works. I mean, it's a very corrupt system. I mean, the Democrats and Republicans have no corruption on the, on the, on the New Testament local church today, believe me. It's, a, it's in a mess. Well, then the seventh thing, the seventh thing will be found over here in 2 Peter chapter 3. And you can see how that each one of these is a major piece of your Bible. I mean, when you start connecting the dots with all these things that I'm giving you, I mean, you, uh, you, get, a, you get a Bible full of truth here, and you start, start putting the things together for you. Now, this one here is in 2 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> and this is the last thing that the Bible says that we're not to be ignorant of, and it says this. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And, of course, uh, 
A lot of guys want to lift this verse out of context, and they want to simply, uh, they, they go a lot of different goofy places with it. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the, the, the aspect here, uh, they'll, they'll go back, and this is where they'll say that uh, uh, the seven days back in Genesis where God did the creation were, were, were really seven literal days. They were 7,000 years, you know, so that adds more time to everything. I mean, for God, it gives, now you get that infusion of evolution, uh, 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 evolution theology, you know, theistic evolution that you can now find a way in that God put it all into play and then just sit back and let evolution take its form, you know, and all that stuff. And, of course, that's not what you have. You've got to keep it in the context here. Um, so let's, uh, let's pick it up here in verse 3. And it says, <clears throat> knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days uh, scoffers walking after their lust. Now, if you don't already know this, the last days, whenever you find it in the Bible, we, we have a general thinking that it means the days that we're living in, the last days, uh, which we are in the last days. There's no question about that. But that's not what it's talking about. When it says in the last days, it's talking about the last 3,000 years of the church age. Uh, there's the system, day system in the Bible. And he's saying the last days, we know that uh, there, when Christ showed up, that was the beginning of the, of the uh, fifth day. Uh, and now we're in the uh, sixth day, uh, moving toward the end, almost to the seventh day, which is the millennium. So the, the last days here will be the last 2,000 years of church history plus the 1,000-year millennium, just so you know that. So he's talking about in a general sense here, not in the sense of just <clears throat> the hours short. We only got a few days left before the Lord comes back. I mean, that may be true, but that's not the reference that he's talking about. Now, here we come. <clears throat> and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, <clears throat> that definitely sets the time period as Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. Uh, it says, uh, from the beginning of the creation. The Bible says, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There it is. You don't find the word creation or created anymore in chapter 1 or chapter 2 till you get down where he makes the animals, the whales. He's not creating anything else. The creation, the beginning of the creation, dates this from 1-1 to 1-2. For this they were willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then overflowed water perished. Now, you're evangelical, a lot of your Baptists, <clears throat> certainly a lot of your educated guys, they will make this Noah's flood. And of course, uh, uh, Noah's flood is found in Second uh, Peter. It's found in chapter 2, if you want to look at it. <clears throat> In verse 5, it says, And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. And uh, there's the flood, legitimately Noah's flood. Well, because they reject Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, the gap, they have to do something with, with, um, uh, with this earth being overrun with water. So the easiest thing to do is to make a Noah's flood, and therefore they think that they get out from under it. And of course, again, uh, once you reject Bible doctrine and Bible truth, 
Uh, I mean, your rear end hangs out like a guy who just ripped his britches. I'm just going to tell you. Now look at verse 5. <clears throat> For this they are willingly ignorant of. So that's a good thing. They are willingly ignorant of it. It isn't accidentally. They are willingly ignorant of it. There is a mindset behind their wanting to be ignorant here. <clears throat> For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now that could not be Noah's flood anywhere, shape, or form, because if you look at verse 5, it says the heavens. And we know there's three heavens. <clears throat> we know the water didn't affect where God was, the third heaven, <clears throat> but we do know from Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and other places in the Bible that it affected the first heaven and the second heaven. Noah's flood didn't affect any heaven. <clears throat> the heavens weren't drowned out in Noah's flood, but they were in the one between 1-1 one, one and 1-2. One, See how the Bible keeps you honest and you have to just be a rank <clears throat> rejectionist of truth and try to get around the very stuff that's there. That Bible says the heavens. That means whatever this flood was drowned out two heavens. Noah's flood didn't drown out any heavens. And then it says of old. The water and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That's Genesis 1-1 where God begins to pull the water back and let the earth come forth from the, from the deep. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. <clears throat> but the heavens and the earth which are now, now you see that? There you find the word heavens again. So the same heavens in verse 6 that are going to be wiped out by fire, we definitely know what they are, are the same heavens that got wiped out by water. And we know now what they are. See how the Bible makes it clear for you? If you just follow it. Now, you obviously get a Bible and all the new translations will take off those little S's or change the word. You see the trouble you're in? And that's what they do. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This will be, this will be Revelation chapter 20. Uh, where uh, at the end of the chapter, uh, fire comes down from heaven and, and we, earth and the, and the heavens get renovated by fire. This is exactly where it's at. And uh, this shows you that this is, not a, this is not a local purging. It's a purging of the first heaven and the second heaven out of space. And the flood up here in verse 5 was not a local flood. It both cases, it connected with the heavens. And there's no way around that. So he's going, here we go, he's going from Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the creation. You all see that. And he ends with the renovation of the heavens and the earth by fire. That's Revelation chapter 21, 20 and 21. So he starts at the beginning of the Bible in verse 5, and he ends at the end of the Bible, and then he says this. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord as is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. All right, verse 9. Context. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Whoa, 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 hold up there. Promise in verse 9. Jump back up to verse 4 and saying, where is the 
promise of his coming. So the promise here that we're talking about and everything that we're talking about here is the coming of the Lord. And he just told you the time element for the coming of the Lord is from the beginning of the creation to the renovation of the heavens and the earth by fire. Now, the key to that, one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. <clears throat> now we would go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we now we would find that you have to begin the creation, you have seven days that God creates something. He creates it in six and he rests the seventh. So now we go back there. We, we see that the Bible says that the first day, the evening and the morning were the first day. The second day shows up. We see the evening and the morning were the third day. Uh, the third day shows up, even in the morning. The fourth day shows up, the evening and the morning. The fifth day shows up, evening and the morning. The sixth day shows up evening and the morning. Now, when the seventh day shows up, you won't find any evening or morning. And when the seventh day shows up, he separates the seventh day from the other six. He says he sanctifies it and he makes it holy. And the Jew down through the rest of the Old Testament is told to work six days and not rest that seventh because that seventh is the picture of the millennial Sabbath when the earth is at rest. So he shows you that First six, evening and the morning, when it came to the seventh, there was no evening and the morning because that's God's eternal day and it, there's no more time. It moves into eternity. And it's clearly showing you that man is going to be on this earth for 6,000 years. I've told you before about <clears throat> Usher's chronology. <clears throat> a lot of the older Bibles uh, have Usher's chronology in it. If you have a Ruckman study Bible, he has it in it. The old Schofield has it in it. Unfortunately, the Oxford don't. I wish they did. I had to put mine in myself. But Archbishop Usher was a guy who lived around 1600. And what he did was, is he took the Bible and he took from a fixed point in time, which was, I believe it was the, cap, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was a fixed point in time. And then he worked the genealogies through the Bible back and he works them back to Genesis chapter 1. And every, every genealogy is accounted for that runs man's history right back to Genesis chapter uh, 3 with Adam and Eve. And based on him doing that, and I can't even imagine the task that was to do that, but he published a book that's about that thick. I have a copy of it. It's been out of print for 400 years. And uh, they just put it back in print. Originally it was in Latin. And they put it back in English about, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I got a copy of it. It's about that thick. And uh, it's uh, simply still called Usher's Chronology. And what he did was, is he took all the genealogies and the chronology of genealogies in the Bible and ran them backwards and came up with Adam and Eve in the garden at 4004 B.C. And that's the biblical date. That's the biblical date that, that, all, that where time starts. Before that, you don't, you don't have any time between 1-1 one, one and 1-2. One, and then when God begins the reprocess of remaking everything or restructuring everything, uh, you have the seven literal days, but Adam and Eve go down in the garden when he creates them 4004 B.C., on our chart up here, which is based on Usher's chronology, you have Adam and Eve in the garden at 4004. Now, based on that, and based on Second Peter here, 
where it talks about one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. If that is accurate, and I'm not disputing it at all, but here's the problem. I grew up in the 70s, you know, and uh, hearing Ruckman preach and teach all the time, you know, and this is where all this stuff began, even though it was out before him. He's the one that really brought it to the light. And he was talking about the fact that uh, that uh, the Lord was going to come. Now, this was in the 1970s. And he, he never said a date or anything. He wasn't that way. Yeah, but he also, but he did say that according to the Bible, that uh, based on this verse and what goes on, that um, the um, the rapture would have to take place in 1993. You got seven years tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ would be in 2000, going to the millennium. Now that is based on 100% accurate, based on what you have in here of 1,000 years. Every one day is a thousand years with the Lord, but it didn't happen. Here we are, 18 years past that now, 19 years past that now, 18 years, 19 years past that. It didn't happen. Which, again, and I've heard this, uh, now guys are questioning the fact that, uh, you know, well, and, and of course, that's, that's where they always go. And I'm, I am fairly committed to the fact that, that the time element is the correct time element. The problem is simply this. We are told in Daniel... In Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 21, <clears throat> that, that the Lord can change the times and the seasons. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the times and the seasons, wherever you find that in the Bible, will always deal with the second coming of Christ. So even though that that is in your Bible, <clears throat> God leaves himself the option to do it during that time frame or not. <clears throat> And that is no different than what God did with the first coming of Christ or he did with the nation of Israel or he did with the church age. <clears throat> if the Jews would have done what was right and they would have followed everything that Christ did, there wouldn't have been a church age. The millennium, Christ would have come back right then. The millennium would have started right then and there wouldn't have been a church age. But God had the option that if it didn't go that way, that he could play it out another way. He always does that. And of course he did. And so it's the same thing here. God in his mind may be extending this thing because of the fact that he wants something he wants to do. Now, there's another answer here that is, is a very plausible answer too. In fact, there's three answers here. And it could be a combination of each one or it could be one or whatever. I don't know. But it's one of these three. And that is the fact that our calendars are off. And uh, one of the popes, Gregory, uh, messed with the calendar and changed it around. It's been changed several times. And so what you don't know for sure is what calendar time frame is Christ going by. And it may be, and I'm not saying this is true at all. I'm just, my mind is just speculating based on what I do know. It may be that in the Old Testament, when God went by, when Israel was still the main nation, God was going by the Jewish calendar, which is different than ours. And then when the Gentiles came over, he started counting time by the Gentiles. Would that would throw it all off? It may be, within this same one here, that he's just going by Jewish time because 
it all rounds around the Jew and the Gentiles don't figure into it, which would throw it off too. Now, the only other explanation, or the third one, is that back in the book of Judges, you find a discrepancy between when one place that it says they uh, were uh, uh, in the land and another place, a discrepancy of 80-some years. And here again, the scholars dispute that by simply saying that that's a, that's a mistranslation or a mistake in your Bible, that they got the, the two numbers don't match, they're 80-some years off, and they simply say that somebody made a mistake. Well, when you, go, when you go back to the book of Judges and you start counting up the years that they're in captivity to the Moabites and all these other nations because of the disobedience, you find the missing number. And what you come up with is the fact, and Mel Sabaka had an incredible message on this. What you come up with is the fact that God did not count the time that they were in the bondage of the world. That could be a factor. I don't really care what it is. I don't lay awake at night think about it. I certainly don't spend my life trying to find out which one it is because you're wasting your time and uh, there's better things you should be doing with your time. Uh, I just simply rest in this. Whenever the rapture takes place in God's mind, it'll be the year 2000, however he's counting it. And the fact that he's not counting the way we're counting it doesn't bother me at all. I don't care. Uh, It's just one of those things where we're not sure how he's doing it. The Bible says when it comes to the second coming of Christ, no man knoweth the day or the hour. And the Bible always makes the reference to it as the times and the seasons. And it also likens it to a woman in travail going to have a baby, which is, is a, great, a great analogy because when a woman gets, gets pregnant, uh, they always give her a due date. And very few women actually have the baby on the due date. There are some that actually do, but the majority of them do not. But you don't know for sure when that baby's coming, but you do know that when you're getting close to that time that it's getting really close. And that's what he uses as an understanding of, of, of what we're dealing with today uh, concerning the rapture and the second coming. I don't know how much longer it is, but I do know that the travail is very clear and that I may not know the the day or the hour, but I can sure read the times and the seasons. With what's going on in the world, what's going on in the Middle East. And then you have the other little caveat, which is thrown out there in Matthew chapter 24, that says that uh, in the budding of the fig tree, we've talked about this many times, that uh, when that when that fig tree, Israel, puts forth leaves, becomes a nation, that not a generation will pass before all those things that he mentions in that chapter are going to come to pass. And the thing that he's mentioning is a tribulation and the second coming. Now you're left with the idea of the four or five different generations in the Bible. So uh, Israel became a nation in 1948. Here we are, 2018. You can put the math to it. any time, uh, you know, up, I think the, the, the generation of 100 years is a generation of 120 years. And there may be an even an unknown one we, don't get, we haven't gotten, but certainly um, the other, many of them are already passed. So, but it doesn't have to mean that it goes to that time. It can go any time within that. So you have some time elements, and, but you just don't find the pieces that put it all together. And that's because, you know, God is not going to, 
he's not going to he's not going to reveal it uh, until he's ready to reveal it if he ever does reveal it. Uh, we ought to be satisfied with the times and the seasons. But when you begin to see these things, and here again, this is a major piece of your Bible <clears throat> because this is where the whole Bible hangs, really. And <clears throat> once you, and, and I love the way this thing there that he starts out from the beginning of the creation with the flood there, and then he winds up with the renovation of the earth by fire, which is Revelation 20, 21. I love how he puts the, the concepts there, and then the next verse he tells you, you want to figure this out? You know, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. You're going to be here for 6,000 years, and the 7,000 years is going to be the beginning of the millennium. However God is counting that, that's the way it's going to work. Now, <clears throat> that is, I'll just tell you right now, <clears throat> that is totally ludicrous to the world today and much of the Christian world. The devil has done his work and thinking that the earth has been here for millions of years, that man's been a caveman and, you know, and, and evolved and the dinosaurs like we talked about Thursday night, you know, uh, and all of that stuff. And for somebody to come up with a, uh, a statement that the earth has only been here for 6,000 years, uh, they'll just go ballistic with that. Uh, that stands in the face of every scientific theory that they've ever put forth. And, uh, and yet the Bible's true. I remember years ago, <clears throat> this is really before I got right with God, uh, <clears throat> and I never forgot this, I was, I was really into astronomy, and there was a British astronomer by the name of Patrick Moore, uh, he's long dead now. And he wrote, wrote a lot of books on astronomy, and I really enjoyed his writings. I remember, I, I think it was in 1966, I, I was in England. I went to England, and I uh, went into a bookstore, and I bought a bunch of his books and brought them home. And I don't remember which book it was in. I kept it for a long while, but I don't know what happened to it. <clears throat> but he starts at the end, he starts talking about the creation of of everything, or the, or the beginning. Of course, he's an evolutionist, true and true. And he was going through all of the plausible scenarios of how everything got here, you know, the steady state theory, the encounter theory, the nebulous theory, all those goofy things. And then just as a point of ridicule, he put in there, and I'll never forget it, he put in there that, and then you have the, the Jewish uh, scientist, the Jewish faith, who claims, and he's, he's being, you know, it's, it's just a joke. He's laughing about it. Who claim that the, everything started and everything was created, the earth and the heavens and everything, on Tuesday, on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning in 4004 B.C. And I thought to myself, I, I didn't think much of it at the time. Years later when I got plugged in, I went back and found that book. I just looked at it and I said, wow, there it is. See, the Jews have a lot of information because they have, they, they're such stickers, sticklers on their chronologies and their time. I mean, they may not know who Christ is, but they got the genealogies down. And I always marveled at that because it says that, that the, the earth and everything was created on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock in 4004 B.C. And I'm looking at that, 4004 B.C. Yeah, but you realize that Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock is when he was crucified on the cross? 
I mean, it's a thing where I saw that years later, and, I just, and I've never forgotten that. Now, that may be true or may not be true. I don't know. But I'm just saying, it's things like that that the world laughs at. Because then he would say that that makes the earth about 6,000 years old, which we know scientifically cannot be possible. Well, I know scientifically it can't be not possible. Biblically, it's very possible because <laughs> that's the way it happened. So you find that <clears throat> things like this, it'll open up great aspects of the scriptures, but you've got <clears throat> you to use candor of who you talk about with this to, give it to. Uh, not that it's not true, but it's the fact that uh, the average person. One of the rules that you find is you cannot teach the Bible on your level of understanding to anybody that doesn't have that same level. Now, now here it's different because you come here to learn. And But, you know, if you go to work tomorrow and you have a Christian friend there and he's going to some dead church and knows nothing about the Bible, you try to explain all this to him, you're going to look like an idiot. That's my point. In other words, on one-on-one with people, you got, they've got to have some kind of, of, of workable foundation that you have something to work with with the truth you give them. And that doesn't happen very often. So, you know, a lot of this stuff, obviously, this is a Bible institute. It's for you. It's for you to come away and learn your Bible, grow in your Bible, understand your Bible, get a handle on your Bible, see how the doctrine is the things that pull everything together, and that how these things keep crisscrossing each other, and uh, they're absolutely invaluable to you uh, in what you what you need to do. So you want to <clears throat> keep that in mind and you want to just realize that uh, this is what you get. You, you get a, this is what Isaiah 28 says, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We're building a foundation in your life of truth, doctrine. You're building your wall, your high tower. You're putting all that together, but you get it here a little, there a little. You never get it all in one setting. You have to keep coming, keep growing, keep taking what you need to do and you know, and then and then and then go with it from there, and it's a process. Uh, it it you know, uh, and I'm not claiming by any stretch of the imagination of having a complete handle on the Bible, but I'm telling you, it's taken me almost 50 years to get where I'm at, and uh, I probably got a good handle on it, you know, after 30 years of of, of finding where I needed to go. <clears throat> but every day of my life, man, it's more now not finding out what I. What I reaffirming what I know it's finding out all the things that I didn't know that I missed the first time a couple of times around, and it's a thing where that's what God does. <clears throat> God will always teach you the Bible. Listen to me. God will always teach you the Bible on the layer of truth by which you just laid. You quit laying down a basis of truth, He'll quit teaching you. Just that simple. He, uh, he, 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 you got to keep laying down a baseline of truth on that foundation that he will build on that. When you stop laying the baseline, he stops building anything on it. And that is so true. <clears throat> and that's why <clears throat> the bulk of responsibility for learning the Bible uh, for you and for me is what we do with what you get here or what you get on your own personal study. And it's a thing where you, you just have to go after it. The difference between somebody who really will learn their Bible and somebody who won't will simply be the people, we'll just use institute here, that you'll get here, you're here every time, you get them in there, you put in your notebook, but you go home and you do nothing with it. You have to, you have to spend uh, a lot of time 
uh, filtering and putting down and getting down and working it for you, for your understanding and getting it in. And then God takes that and God stretches you by that. He exercised that and it comes back to you in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But it has to be one piece at a time. And, uh, you know, it's a lifelong process. All, all I can do is just, you know, my job, I, I, and I, you know, obviously all the years I've been in the Bible has been for me, certainly, absolutely for that. But I also see it as, as God's given me the ability uh, to take 50 years or almost 50 years of, of learning and putting it together to make it easier and quicker for you. And, you know, I can do, I can do it quicker for you than it took for me doing it myself. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, uh, somebody who really understands what he's doing and training people is going to be somebody who isn't going to do what scholarship does, and that is keep you at arm's length and, and never let you uh, ever get up on an equal par with them. They'll always just teach you enough but not teach you all so they can always be over you. And every time you go somewhere that you think you're up with there, they'll say, yeah, but, yeah, but look at this. And then you're back down again. See, they want to keep you down. That's called the doctrine of Nicolaitans. Uh, the, the laity over the, uh, the priest class over the laity. And that's what they do. You know, real Bible Christianity has nothing to do with that. The pastor who understands his job will realize that in the time that a pastor has in his life and the people that God gives him, his main goal is to get everything that he has that he's invested into you quicker than it took him. And so you can get it faster, you can get it quicker, because we got a job to do, and the quicker you learn it, the faster we're going to get it done. And I don't do anybody any favors by just teaching you a little bit of it and holding some back so you don't get where I think you're going to know more than I do. I expect you to know more than I do. The older I get, the less I can remember, the less I do, the less I'm able to do, the more you're going to have to pick it up. And if I hold everything back from you and don't give you because I've got some mindset that I got to be on top of the pyramid all the time. Hey, you're never going to, you're never going to build people that way. God gave it to me so I could give it to you and God's given it to you. So you can give it to somebody else and you'll find ways to do it. And I'm sure you do. I mean, I'm not in all your discipleship groups or what you work with it, but I'm sure you do. You take the information, you repackage it, you refit it, you keep the truth, you keep the doctrines, and then you find ways, based on the individual people that you're working with, you find ways how to get it to them quicker. You do for them what I'm doing for you, and the whole process then builds a, a, a group of people who, as quickly as you can, and I know there ain't no fast track to it, I'm not suggesting that, but you can get it quicker if you want it based on that way than just somebody just giving you a little bit here and, and holding it back from you and not giving you total access to that. I mean, between Sunday morning, Thursday night, whatever one-on-one -on -one time you want to have, plus this and people ministry, you realize how much Bible you get? Amen. I mean, you show me, and here again, I'm just, you show me another church in this city or this country that gives you that level. I'm not saying that it's that good. I'm just saying there's a lot of, lot of it. Whether it's good or not, you have to decide. But I'm saying there is a lot of it. And, and I mean, and, you know, but here again, to whom much is given, much is required. I've done my part with it. 
Now you've got to do your part with it. And, and, and most of you do. I mean, it's an incredible thing to watch you do it. And I, there are guys out there that, man, I, when it comes to preaching, you're as good as anybody I've ever heard. And you're good at it. And uh, I'm sure coming this volleyball season, we'll see a marked change in a little devotions. Because <laughs> Jesus is watching. <laughs> woof, woof. So, you know, these things are vital. And my goal for you is to, you know, before I pass off the scene, is to get everything out that I got. I appreciate the books that John puts out for me. I appreciate the website that Caleb and, and Woody and, and uh, all the guys that work with that, Aaron and all the people who have invested in that, that, that put a legacy out there. You know, I, you know Mel Sabaka was probably one of, the, uh, one of the great last Bible teachers and preachers, but you can't even find any of his material. You go on the website, you may find a few things that he preached here and there, but nothing was ever written down. They didn't tape it. If it was, it's all lost. Can't find it anywhere. A Ruckman's got a lot of stuff out there, but you know, but you got to go through, you know, you, you got to go through a bookstore and and buy it, spend hundreds of dollars to get, you know, what the material he's got. It's not free. And I'm not saying that it should be, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, there's great guys that I grew up with that, that had great things to say, had some of the greatest practical material, but it was all lost. No legacy of it. Nobody can get it now. And, and what happens is in time, people forget those guys, people forget that. And then the truth that they give out is forgotten and lost. And then some idiot comes along with a whole new idea that has nothing to do with the Bible. And that's what you're up against. You know, and I, I really, I do. I, I, feel, I feel sorry for the guys today that try to go out and start churches or even guys that uh, are women who are, you know, just trying to serve the Lord and do what's right in most churches. They're, they're, they're defeated before they ever get into the, into the, on, the, on the playing field. I mean, uh, it, it just is because they're not, they're not getting prepared. I mean, you, you may not do what right, right with what I give you, but I, have, I sleep every night really good knowing that I prepared you the best that I know how. Mm-hmm. And it's on you. And I, I just wish to God I'd have had what you had when I was growing up. Uh, Lord knows where I'd have been. I'd have, you know, I'd, I, I mean, I, how much farther along I would have been. But there was nobody back there. Mel didn't do this. He, he didn't sit down with anybody. He, he, I got it from Bible study. I got it from, you know, a couple of times a year that Ruckman would come in. This is early on, you know, and I'd get his books and I'd start going through it. And I'd literally just, I, I, they, they lit the fire under me, but I didn't have anybody I could go to. I didn't, the Bible studies back then, they, they weren't like our Bible studies. I mean, they were question and answer, but they, you know, they, they weren't like what we have. There was no Bible Institute. There was no people ministry. There was nobody taking and sharing everything. It was a traditional mindset of a church in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s till they all fell apart. And uh, you know what? I had to decide for myself. I wanted. I had to find the avenues of truth for myself. I recognized that down a little place in Exene, Ohio, uh, there was a little bookstore down there. In fact, a bunch of us with Mel drove down one time to see it outside of Columbus, Ohio, Exene, Ohio. Greg Eastep was his name, and he was a pastor, 
And then he ran a little bookstore. And I don't know where he got them. I don't know how he got them. But at that time, and this had to be 19, probably 73, 74, uh, he had on cassette tapes. And I know most of you don't know what a cassette tape is. It's a little square thing like that. He had on cassette tapes almost every book of the Bible that Dr. Ruckman had done uh, in his Bible Institute or in churches. And I don't know where he got them. I don't know how he got them, but he had put them into, into sets. And he had almost every book of the Bible. I'd say out of 66 books, he probably had 45 of them anyhow. Uh, and they were unbelievable. And I remember that when I went down there, I, I knew that this was the outlet I had to have. So, I mean, the, this was in 72, and I think a whole everything he had was like $3,500. Well, $3,500 in 1975 was like a million dollars today. I certainly didn't have $3,500, but I'd had it the truth. So I came back home, refinanced our house, got the money, went down there and bought every bought everything he had. And uh, it was a thing where, there's one of them here. This is, this is Joshua. And uh, it was a thing where... Um, I came home, and for the next 10 years, uh, four or five hours a day, sometimes on a weekend, I'd get, and I had a full 540 job, plus I was in ministry, so I don't want to hear you whining about how much time you don't have. <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. And, uh, you know, and on, sometimes on Saturday, uh, I'd get six, seven, eight hours in. And uh, I would come through every one of those verse by verse, and I'd just start with a book, say Genesis and everything. It probably took me, um, I don't know, three, four months to get through a book because I would keep going back and start it. And that's what I loved about cassettes because you could run them back. Where I don't do discs very well. I, you know, I just, I don't know how you do those. But anyway, uh, but cassettes were easy. You'd run them back and you could stop and run them back and stop and then get it all in. And I just, every time he said something that was profound, I got it into my Bible. And I probably got 500,000 notes in my Bible. But it was a thing where I spent probably 10, 12, 15 years of my life doing that because that's how I had to get it. And I'm not even talking about then the books that I had to get and you go through Clarence Larkin's book, Ruckman's books, that the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven, Mark of the Beast. Are you kidding me? There was nothing out there like that back then. I mean, that stuff was just as it is today. It was, uh, I think, outside the Bible, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which back then was called the more sure word of prophecy, probably the greatest book ever written outside the Bible. I mean, it's, it unlocked the Bible unbelievable for me. I had to read it five times, but finally I got it. And it's a thing where, you know, I just stayed with it and stayed with it and stayed with it and stayed with it. And it paid off and it paid off. And even today, you know, I mean, I, I don't have the time with all that I'm doing to, to you know, to go through every book of the Bible like I used to. Uh, but I don't have to anymore. Uh, it's a thing where... Um, most of it I've committed to memory that I can, I can just do it without even looking at my Bible based on how many times I've done it. But it's a thing where, you know, I, 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 there have been times that somebody will ask me a question on Thursday night Bible study out of, out of a place, some obscure passage. And, you know, and, and, and I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what they're going to ask or what, what it is. But when I get back there, there will be a note that 25, 35, 40 years ago, 
when I was coming through those things, I never let any word fall to the ground. Brother, if it was a reference to, I, I made a rule that wherever he says, and if he takes me to 10 references, that I'm going to, I'm not just going to write the, I'm going to every one of those references and I'm going to put what I have here backwards and forwards and wherever I go, it's going to be, that has saved my hide so many times that you'll ask an obscure question, I'll go to it there, 35 years ago. It's laid dormant for 35 years. And there it is, the answer that I need, and then all the references that I need to. And you know what? I, I had to do it myself. Nobody gave it to me. You know, and I'm glad to do it, but, but, I, but I'll be honest with you. I think sometimes you guys take it for granted. Amen. I think, you know, you come here and you think, oh, yeah, we got a day. Hey, let me tell you, if I would have had... In my day, what you have here, different time, wouldn't it, huh? Perspective. I get it. I'm not mad at you. You're just a bunch of idiots. I'm not mad at you. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you know, and, and it, it irritates me sometimes, you know. You have people, you know, and, and please don't take this wrong, but I gave my whole life to that book. And I have some of God's people that, that take it and won't do anything with it. And, you know, and, and I don't care. I mean, but I, I just telling you, you know what? I, I just wished I had in my day what you have here. Uh, I do. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's the greatest thing in the world. I'm just saying it, I, I know what truth is. And I'm not the best Bible teacher in the world, nor am I the best preacher, nor do I understand all the Bible. I am nowhere saying that. I am just saying I wish that I had in my day what you had. Somebody that would have opened that thing up that you get when you when the Bible says here a little and there a little, it needs to be capitalized in this church because it's everywhere. You get it every time you turn around. And now you're not just getting it from me. Many of you, most of you, have taken the great things that I've given you, not great because for me, but great things in the Bible, and you now are putting them out there. You know, when I don't even know about it. You're repackaging it, using it, and it's going even farther and farther and farther. And that's what it's supposed to do. But it all has to come back to a source. Uh, you know, and it's a source where in that source you have to look at the truth that God gives you. And then you have to decide what you're going to do with it. And most of God's people, you know, and our church is unique. You know, I, I get it. We have a, a volume of people in our church that you don't have. We don't have a lot of idiots. We have those who come and are spectators. I get it. And they're welcome. God bless them. I love them. But you know what? In our church, the bulk of our men and women are going after the Bible. And that just, that's just the way it is. And I'm not saying they're all perfect and you're an idiot at some time. I'm an idiot most of the time. But the bottom line is you're an idiot that knows where the truth is. And so you stay and you're working on it and you're using it. And God is using you. And, you know, and I look at the, you know, I, you know, I look at the volleyball thing, you know, and I talked about adding two more teams and, you know, somebody, everybody thinks that's great. And it is great. But I don't look at it as just, wow, now we got 14 teams. I look at it that they represent people. This church is at a level that it's never been before. I mean, we got, we got so much going on and so many people coming in all the time that are just, I mean, the last year, and, and most of you are here today, but the last year, has anybody ever looked around and looked at the families that God has brought into this church and the qualities that they are? Yeah. I mean, 
I, I, I don't have any explanation for that other than in all the time you've spent in the Bible is finally paying off. And that's what it's supposed to do. But I look at him, man. I look at him and, and how quickly when you came in, you didn't waste any time. You were in here, man. Here you are. You're learning. You're growing. Your kids are learning and growing. I mean, I mean, look at it. Your kids may have come in and they may have had some issues, but just in a short time of a year, look where they're at. Look how it's moving. And it's only going to get better because that's what, that's what God does. And I'm just saying, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm just talking to you now. I'm not talking to you as your pastor. I'm just talking to you as somebody who's a student in the Word of God like you are. Don't take it for granted. There may come a day when you don't have it. So don't take it for granted. You glean everything you can. You get everything you can and can everything you get. I mean, you just, you just let, don't let any truth be over, unturned. You get it. And you get it into your Bible. You get it working it for you. And you let God use you. Look for opportunities to minister to people. Look for opportunities to, to get things done. Because God wants to use you. And, and you're worth being used. But it's been a long road. It's been a long road, you know, but it's been a good road because, you know, I had to get it the hard way. I had to dig it out of the rocks, but now you don't have to. And I look at everything I learned and every dime I spent and every moment, every hour, every, every month, every year that I put in it, that if one person in this church takes and does something with it, it will have been worth it. And I know there'll be more than one, but I'm just saying one person. Jesus Christ changed the whole face of the earth. One man, Paul, changed the whole face of Christianity. What God can do with you, one person, if you're willing to have that commitment to the Word of God and to just say, God, use me. Here I am. And then you dedicate yourself to that book. I mean, you keep your nose to the grindstone. And at the end of your life, you'll be famous. You'll be the only person that can cut a steak with your nose. <laughs> Let's hold up there. 